Greetings, everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, this is the debut episode of the Small Town Psalm podcast with Justin King. I am based in the Lansing, Michigan area. I own my own restaurant uh, by the name of Bridge Street Social. I've been studying through the Quartermaster Sommeliers and will continue to do so and enjoy it for the most part and wanted to share some stories with similar people, different people. Uh, mostly wanted to share stories on this podcast with people who might be underdogs, people who might be coming from places like where I'm from or coming from places from different perspectives. You know, the court of master sommeliers and the sommelier world uh, has this reputation of being elitist and maybe well-deserved, but there's a lot of people out there who are different than what you see and their stories need to be told and I hope that I can help tell them. So my goal overall is to tailor this to the wine industry and have discussions with sommeliers, servers, owners, bartenders, uh, other industry veterans of all kinds of backgrounds, topics including their life's work and studies, but also uh, issues related to what's going on today that can affect beverage professionals and also the industry at large. And these issues may include, but are not limited to personal growth, mental health, overall personal safety in the workplace, economics, trends, concerns, and, uh, and many other societal issues. So I hope you enjoy the listen. Thank you. I'm here with Bobby Burgess, who is wine director for a group down south in Mississippi, a very notable one. Bobby, you want to tell everybody which uh, what, what that restaurant group is and what you do there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am the wine director for Eat Local Starkville in Starkville, Mississippi. Um, so we have a few different concepts. Um, our most, I guess, notable restaurant is Restaurant Tyler. We are farm to table, so we focus on receiving produce and um, different I guess food items from as many farmers as well as our own farm as possible Um, and we try to do the same thing with our wine program so we try to source from small producers we do have a few big producers on but we do try to keep um, everything kind of following the same path is that difficult for you as a sommelier to sort of navigate those waters or does it, has it, has it become easier over the last few years? Yeah, it's definitely become a little bit easier because we're getting um, more product into the state every day. It's just digging through people's portfolios, which is a little difficult since a lot of reps don't travel here. Um, We only have a few for the entire state and it's a pretty big state. Well, so, so to backtrack here, um, in Mississippi, and you're you're in northern Mississippi, yeah? But mm-hmm. still, you're in Mississippi, and you said one of the problems or one of the things about it is that there, you're getting more products into the state. That implies that in the past there has been a problem with procuring the product that you want to get. Yes, uh, definitely. Anytime that, I mean, it's, and I get it, if someone's, willing to send their product to the state if they don't meet numbers you know they just quit selling to the state of mississippi altogether 
And a lot of times we have these small brokers who'll pick up product and they just don't push it. Or we have big brokers who pick up product and they are not, they have too much product. They can't focus on everything the way that they should be. That's unfortunate. It sounds like a situation where you don't really have a whole lot of control and you can just have to sort of pick and choose who is paying attention to their own product and who's actually showing up. Yes. So I only work with a handful of, uh, I guess you could say distributors and reps. Is that something that you choose right now? You you prefer to work with only, only say three or four different reps or vendors or. Yes. I work with people that I know are representing their products well and um, not only have the best interest in their product, um, the best interest for our state, but the best interest for our restaurant group as well, like people who are willing to help us when we need help and vice versa. So your restaurant group is in Starkville. How, how big is Starkville? Well, um, I think, I believe normally we're probably only have about 20,000 people. But with school in, that doubles in size because it is Mississippi State University. How is that going thus far uh, with fall and kids coming back? What does it feel like right now? Well, it's not as crazy as it usually is. Uh, I think a lot of parents did opt for their children to do online learning. So we have a lot of students who just are just not as many people in town um and we recently I guess last week we had two sorority houses and a fraternity you know get quarantined for COVID-19 so we are kind of on the edge of our seats waiting to see if the university is going to end up shutting down or not just hoping that people behave (laughs) yes oh my oh my goodness yes Um, I mean, dealing with the backlash in restaurants, this weekend we had a few guests who just did not want to wear masks, were just kidding. I mean, it's difficult. Uh, I find it's definitely difficult as a woman if you tell someone like, hey, so sorry, you do have to have your mask on and they kind of want to get snippy. And then, you know, a male manager walks up and they put it on. But I mean, that happened twice this weekend. And it's just like, we have the, we have the sign on the door. No one reads the door. No one reads it. Our hosts tell them and they're like, well, my table's just right there. It doesn't matter where your table's at. You have to have a mask to come in. Trying, trying to understand this sort of thing. I can see why it's difficult because, you know, we're not scientists. We're not virologists. We don't understand these things on a day-to-day basis. We didn't go to school for them, but like, it's really fascinating to me because the philosophy of it is, just thinking through hospitality is just really simple. Like when you're in a shared space with other people, why would you not be cautious? And once you get to your space that is not shared by other people, then you get to be less cautious. That seems to me, that seems obvious, but I can understand why somebody doesn't get it, I guess. But it's, I mean, but compliance for those sorts of things just makes it easier for people like you who are just trying to do your job. Yes, definitely. And I think people don't seem to understand that. It's not a rule we made. It's, you know, everyone in the country pretty much right now, governors have made rules like this and and they're there for a reason. And arguing with 
your with the staff of a restaurant is it's just it's it's uncalled for but also when people come in like oh we didn't know we had to have masks it's like in our state masks have been mandated when wherever you're at if you go into the gas station if you go into the store for months there's no way you didn't know some trifling liars (laughs) they are they're like trifling i'm like you think we're stupid but we're not like please put your mask on and Quit yelling at your server. And people are tipping terribly. Oh, man, that's too bad. That's not fair. That's, that has nothing to do with you at all. It has nothing to do with your Yeah, service. they're like, well, if we didn't have a mask, you could you know, have a 20% tip, but we'd wear a mask. So here's $5 on 300 Well, if you didn't have a mask, you might be asymptomatically positive and getting somebody else sick. So thanks. That's a good tip. That's a great tip, guys. <sighs> you're, not from, uh, you're not from Starkville, though. Where are you from? So I am, well, I was actually born in Charleston, South Carolina, um, and then I was adopted, and my parents, or my, I say parents, it's my adopted mom and my adopted grandparents, moved us to um, Bethlehem, Georgia. Where is that? Uh, So that is going to be North Georgia, um, closer to Athens, where UGA is. So how does someone go from Charleston to Bethlehem to Starkville and become a sommelier in their 20s who is relatively well known for their region? How does how does how does that happen? What what, ha- what happened in the last seven years or so that ca- that that puts you in that position? And obviously, it's a lot of your work. I mean, no, no, no doubt. But but what, what's what's the line of progression here? So I guess. I was, it was my senior year, I guess I was like 17, and I ended up moving in with my sister, um, moved out of the house, moved in with my sister, and when it was getting time to go to college, I just really wanted a way, and I wanted to be away from everyone, um, not, I mean, it's one of those situations where my Family, adoptive family did a lot of good, but they also obviously weren't perfect. And there are a lot of bad situations there. Um, And I really just wanted to get away from everyone. So I applied to Mississippi State University and I got accepted. And that is where I moved. Now, I did have a stint of really bad health and moved back in with my mom and grandparents my sophomore year of college before moving back out and back to Mississippi State so so presumably you were you started working in the industry somewhere at a restaurant when you got to Starkville oh no I was um in a restaurant before then Um, I started with the Darden program you know those good old restaurants uh, which part of Darden did you work for I worked for Longhorn Steakhouse so I know, I know people like to slag on unsexy large corporations like Darden, and I and I get it, but there's definitely something to be learned at different locations like that or Capital Grill or whatever. Um, I mean, and a lot of it is also what not to do. <laughs> but but can you can you point back to anything in, in that first gig that that taught you what the industry was really like or how it prepared you, good or bad? Yeah, absolutely. I fell in love with the restaurant industry working at Longhorn Steakhouse. I know that's crazy. I don't know why. And I started as a host 
But I just absolutely, I absolutely loved it. I loved the people I was working with. It was like a family. Um, I didn't mind working long hours. I would double close as a host all the time. I was hoping to train new hosts um, at different locations, but it was just, it was fun. I, I don't know. I guess I felt like I had a purpose and also I have to be able to, I have my brain works. I have to move. I have to move around. I am not one of those people who can sit still. So having a job where I was just constantly moving was great. And it was the first time I had like money and I'd never seen money like that before because we grew up well, relatively poor. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but it was more than I had ever seen. So, um, a lot of the things that I loved is just the training program for hosts, how you greet people when they walk in the door. Um, as, someone who works in a restaurant, if someone came in and they had Darden experience as, especially as a host, I would hire them on the spot. Like they know how to talk to people. They're trained on how to talk to people. So they understand listening. They understand scripts. They understand things to say and things not to say. Mm -hmm. That is something that's important. I think, and a lot of independence, I don't want to call necessarily mom and pops because they're not exactly always formed that way, but there's definitely a lot of small independence that don't have access to that training, but you've gone through that and you work with people in a small town. You are somebody that people do look up to, um, at your restaurant. How has it benefited you, um, at restaurant Tyler and eat local? Yeah. Um, so we've been working on our training manuals and just having the experience of working in a corporation, you see what works, you see what doesn't work and you can be like, Hey, you know, over here, we did this this way. It's done that way for a reason. There are reasons that so many restaurants perform this way. Um, however, if you look at this training manual, uh, some of these things, when I worked in a corporate restaurant, you know, they just didn't really work. And they definitely wouldn't work here. So you kind of know how to pull the best things that work well across the board. Um, but you also know how to kind of tweak some of the things that didn't that um, just should probably be thrown out by corporations as well. I think a lot of that's probably a liability, but but I, I, I get very interested in it because now you're somebody who pays very great attention and detail to the wine industry. You're making your career as a sommelier, which is a long a lot of people's from a lot of people's perspective would be a long far away version of what you'd think a host would be it's just very different um i think there's a lot more similarities than differences a lot of ways and i don't mean that to be demean i think it's i think that 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 the psalm can very much be glue to a team um but what excited you about wine and the industry and wanting to make that shift yeah, so I was working as a bartender, um, and before then, I also had a bakery at the time. Like, I was baking out of my house. Uh, I was selling cupcakes in our speakeasy You were selling um, illegal cupcakes? Well, you know, not really. <laughs> kind of. It's well, fine. Well, they were made in the restaurant, so I guess, no. I guess because I was making them in the restaurant, um, if I was selling them in the guest room, they were technically legal. Um, since I was using all the products from the restaurant, but if I was selling them out of my house, they were just going to like the farmer's market and things like that. But 
They were definitely my cupcakes, not the restaurants, but we did sell them. What was your best cupcake? Oh my goodness. Um, unfortunately, probably the banana pudding cupcakes. I say that unfortunately because I quit making them for some time because I made so many. I had someone pay me $300 for 12 cupcakes what? one time of banana pudding. Yeah, I was like, I can't make these anymore. And they were like, please, please. And I was like, okay. And they handed me $300 after I dropped them off. I'm like, you really don't have to do this. And they're like, no, we really appreciate it. And I'm like, okay, because if I ever see it, another banana pudding cupcake, I think at one time I had made 24 batches. This is batches. So, 20, you know, there's 24 cupcakes in a batch. Uh, within like two months, I made 24 batches of banana pudding cupcakes. And I was like, if I smell another smashed banana. Bobby. If you wonder if I can pick out carbonic maceration, <laughs> the answer is yes. You got the book done. You got them hooked on banana cupcakes. <laughs> oh, it's so insane. You should just... They love them. You just outsource it. Just hire two people to have to do the dirty work. <laughs> and then you reap all the There's benefits. There's so much that goes into it. It's so bad. So many bananas you have to smash. There's so many. And I, I didn't have, like, the equipment to, like, grind up um, vanilla wafers because I was poor trying to... I was actually baking cupcakes to pay for my exam so i was trying to save up all this money and i had like this meat hammer i didn't use it for meat but i'd take a ziploc bag and i put the little stupid wafers in there and i'd take the hammer and smash them up and boxes and boxes of wafers can i start calling you cupcake some yes absolutely <laughs> well that is how i paid for my exams so it's not wrong i mean you gotta do what you gotta do and we've all had our you know versions of jobs that have been uh, problematic or annoying or smelly. Um, but you know, a lot of people right now, I mean, this isn't just a social media thing. A lot of people right now look up to you and say, Oh, that's cool. She looks like she has a good gig. She knows, she's knows, she knows what she's doing. She's taking exams. She's passing exams. She's here for us. I mean, that has to make you feel pretty good that you you're involved in what, I mean, what really is a small market. You're talking Without students, you're talking 20,000 people in your city. This is not New York. This is not D.C. or Chicago or Seattle. Mm -hmm. and, and then even those numbers are skewed. I know that the city says that, but a lot of our houses stay empty or they're rented out for Airbnb because ticket holders for the games buy them. So they're not like those people aren't here year round. Like half of our, a lot of our houses, there's no one here in them year round. So these houses stay empty for most of the year then all of a sudden six weekends a year they're on airbnb for six hundred dollars a night and they're filled oh yeah wow i mean you know i know it's sec country i get it i get i get what football means to everybody but that's those are those are crazy numbers and it's funny because airbnb definitely has caused a lot of problems in other markets i know orleans has seen um a lack of of good affordable renting for hospitality workers for this exact reason and mm -hmm. i find that to be a little bit disappointing but you know for six weekends a year to have an empty house it's like man that's that's a little bit unfortunate i don't know have you found that to be a cause of a problem for off-campus housing for anybody or or what's that situation feel like overall is it is it um is it con is there contempt between students and non-students or what's the vibe like yeah, so um, there are definitely a lot of the houses for rent in town 
that just aren't, you know, they're not very good. They're, but they're cheap. Um, and then we have a bunch of these apartment complexes going up. Really bad timing that they picked COVID-19 to start doing all these apartment complexes because there's no one to live in them. And then also they're so expensive that our hospitality workers in town can't afford them. So what's what's the cost of a place like that? Because I'm, I'm envisioning exactly the type of new building and I know what those buildings look like. What's what what would a cost for a student be for a place like that? You know, uh, we have some that are. 1500 to 1600 and that's you know sometimes not including utilities for how many people um that's a one bedroom and for some reason one bedrooms tend to cost more in these really new fancy apartment complexes um whereas sometimes if you just which is why it was easier when you could go rent a house and have a few roommates and split that and pay like $300 a month yeah, I'm four or five hundred dollars. That's just month. mystifying to me because I know that the cost of living where you are is relatively low in comparison to what you would see in Boston or New York or whatever. So, but like sixteen hundred dollars is a lot of money, and the only way at that point where you're going to get the, the ability to pay those bills is your parents. At that point, I mean, being mm-hmm. nineteen, I mean, there's not much you can do about that. But I guess that's a that's a problem that's not that's not unique to Starkville. Um, can you talk a little bit, though, about what that city feels like and, and the pro, the beverage programs that you run and what you try to do for, for the people that live there? Yeah, so when I got um, started as a bartender, you know, we were a speakeasy cocktail bar downstairs. Um, we were listed, I think, our first year as one of the top uh, 14 underground bars in the world. Pretty cool. Uh, we were listed a few times in Garden and Gun. Um we do handcrafted cocktails. Uh, but I, again, like I said, I loved baking. Um, so I loved making cocktails. I loved the recipe aspect of it. I liked beer at the time. But I don't know. I just wasn't fulfilled. There wasn't enough room for me to really move up in the company especially. And I guess even at that point, I was kind of looking to relocate to Georgia. So I was like, you know, I've dropped out of school. I had one semester left. I was supposed to, I was in there for social work and it just wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't, I had other things going on as a sexual assault victim, um, survivor. And I was like, I, at the time couldn't help myself. And I'm like, how am I going to go be a social worker and try to tell people, try to help people when I can't help me. So I dropped out and started focusing more on you know, what, what else is there in this industry that I can do? And about that time I had a really good glass of wine from our owners after a really busy football game. And it was plump Jack Merlot. What a great wine to get started with. Uh, before that I hated it. I was like, wine's just gross. It's not for me. And I, I loved it. And I went out the next day, bought as much wine as I could with what I made, which wasn't anything really that great. Cause you know, I didn't really make a ton of money and I ordered a bunch of books on Amazon to start reading and then I found the quartermaster sommeliers online and started researching. There's not a lot of research available at all. Um, waited a few weeks for our next football game, which is, you know, that's when we make our most money. And I saved up all that money that week, paid for the exam, as well as sold a ton of cupcakes. 
to, you know, pay for that exam. And I don't know. It was really confusing. I didn't realize that there were exams all over the country because they do them quarterly. So my options were San Diego, California, San Francisco, California, Chicago, Boston, and I think there was some other random place. And I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. I have to travel halfway across the country. I've never even been on a plane before. Um, so, yeah, actually, it's funny because after I took my exam, I came back and my friend was signed up in New Orleans. I'm like, what? And this is your this is your intro exam or your or your certified. Intro. Yeah, it was intro. I had no idea that they had these down south because they only were posting like quarterly. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so if you can, can you walk me through what this experience is like for anyone who has not uh, sat for any of these exams? What is the introductory course, uh, the exam for the quartermaster sommeliers like? What's that like? So the course itself is great. The preparation, not so much. Um, just because if you look on the internet, and I don't know if people like to fear factor people. Like I think people go on there just to purposely scare people. Um, if you start looking and you're like, oh, the intro, you'll see people who failed the introductory exam and they just talk about how terrifying it was and how hard it is. And so you're sitting here and you're making 4,000 flashcards because you're flying halfway across the country and you don't want to fail and come back a failure and you're panicking and you get into the exam. Um, and if you just read the book they give you, everything's in there. I did not do that. I studied on Guildsome and took all the quizzes and made an obnoxious amount of note cards. Um, aside from blind tasting, I probably could have walked into certified and passed after my intro exam. Well, it sounds like you took it seriously. Um, yes, I actually probably knew more in my intro exam than I did for certified. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, but but that that's the, the reality is people do fail that exam. Not yes. always, and there's it's usually a pretty low percentage. But I mean, when I when I passed it in Madison, I think I did that in 2011. I think there was probably five or six people uh, that didn't pass, and that's always been a concern for me when I when I work with people if, if it's mentoring or just trying to give advice. It's like, yeah, the, the exam itself is pretty easy if you pay attention to the industry. If you just do the basics you read about grapes and regions and and famous wineries and appellations like yeah i mean mm -hmm. yes that that's something that is totally in your wheelhouse and you are you are ready to go um but if you walk in there without you know caring about those things and you're, you're only doing it because you've been mandated by a restaurant owner who doesn't really know what's going on like you know that's not a good position to be in but but okay but you're talking about this before um you said that you were more, you felt probably more knowledgeable going into intro than you did certified, but you passed your certified sommelier uh, exam on the first try, right? And when mm -hmm. did you do that? I did that in February. I want to say February 22nd. It's so funny. Like I know the exact date of my intro exam and my certified exam. I think I just am so traumatized. I was like, it's February something. It, it's in February. Um, I'm going to have PTSD next year. I'm like, this is the day. Um, but yeah, I did pass on the first try and theory level. 
it was it was there like I was definitely I would say I was memorizing some things that were probably more valuable for advanced and I was looking over some things that I was like oh this is a little bit more they're probably not going to ask me this it's not as important and so I kind of put it on the back burner or I didn't pay as much attention to it and like those were the easy questions that you should know the answer to that then you're looking at the exam and you're like, no, I know this. I know this question. Like this is an intro level question. I know what this is. And then you get out of the room and you smack yourself in the face because you forgot a level one question that you should have known the answer to, but you brushed over that page because you were too busy learning the 18 grapes and shots and the pop. <laughs> and that's, that's that's the beautiful thing, uh, and, and every organization has its flaws, and I'll get to a couple of things in a moment here, but one of the things that I really appreciate about the court is that it's not a school, that it is a, a testing service more than anything, and requires you to try and understand the industry within itself instead of explaining the industry to you, because it allows your brain to latch on to things that you might find exciting, and then you get to navigate those waters like a choose-your-own-adventure book. And I think that's really valuable when you're surrounded by all this information. But what if you really only like champagne? Well, you know what? If, that, if you only like champagne right now, then just start reading about champagne. Like, don't worry. Don't mm-hmm. worry about a book, like, at this point, you know? So that's – but the, 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 one of the more interesting things, and this kind of goes along with, with my podcast, Small Town Sound Podcast, the idea that I want to have in this podcast is, number one, I want people to understand – um, that the idea of being a sommelier is not necessarily uh, something that has to go through any certification system. That's that's number one. But number two, these things exist in smaller markets and they exist in ways that maybe aren't displayed on movies or documentaries or TV or media or covers of magazines. You know, um, you got yourself prepared for the certified sommelier exam, which is not immeasurably impossible but does take work to get yourself there. And you have to taste. You're tasting wines now. You're you're being tested on your tasting skills at this point. So what does Assam do when you're in a small town like Starkville, Mississippi, and all of a sudden it it behooves you to have people that you can taste with and and study with? You know, you're not going to a bar in New York 12 blocks away and going to meet your buddies. This is something different for you. Tasting was the, um, the most difficult part for me. And I blind tasted 11 times before I walked into that room. Um, and yeah, the first time I blind tasted, I don't even count my first time because that was looking back on the first time I blind tasted. I asked myself why I was so upset that day because it was such a joke of a tasting. Uh, so the first time I blind tasted, I was with my boyfriend at the time. I was at his house and he was being so nice and he was trying to get this test, you know, just a little blind tasting set up with me with another guy who was a certified Dom in Jackson. And I remember like, this is the first time I've ever tried a bunch of these wines. And I had my little deductive tasting book. So I was getting ready to go to Houston to take the deductive tasting course. And he just kept like, 
the dude was like, I don't know why you won't put that book down and just taste the wine. Just taste the wine and tell me what it is. And I was just like, I ended up crying. I cried myself to sleep that night at my boyfriend's house because I was so upset because I got all of them wrong. And I'm looking, I remember this actually happened last night. I was looking back, thinking about those wines. Not a single one of those wines was testable. I didn't have a chance in hell and guessing any of them. And I remember being so upset with myself for months and not wanting to blind taste and just very discouraged. And I went to the deductive tasting and I was very lucky. I had geist out for most of it and he just broke things down in such an easy way. I nailed Gamay. Um, I really think that was God because I had never tasted a Gamay, but I had been studying so much of it. I had been reading through what a grape should taste like, uh, what those markers were. So when I was tasting it in the glass, I was like, I just, I don't think this is Pinot Noir, but if it's not that, then according to this book, it's got to be, you know, Gamay. And someone was like, well, I don't taste any carbonic. And I was like, well, it doesn't always have to have carbonic. And he happened to be like, oh, you're absolutely right. Like, there doesn't have to be carbonic. And this is Gamay. And I, I felt like, okay, like, if I keep doing this, maybe I'll maybe I'll get somewhere. Um, so after that, um, I ended up coming back to Mississippi. And I've, I tried to form so many different tasting groups. And it just never worked out. Um or people were always bringing wines that weren't testable. And it was just really frustrating because I'm like, look, we have to taste testable wines. There's no reason there should be an unoaked Chardonnay from Oregon in this flight lineup. <laughs> I mean, you're describing, I think, two major, major problems for anybody that works in like a secondary or tertiary market. Number one is the 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 dearth of just the the sheer lack of people who are really passionate about the wine industry and uh, studying for these sorts of exams makes it hard to sort of compile the correct data quickly and and correctly and well for anybody who's studying because you just don't have the same amount of people the communication is slower because they're not always in the same room so you're waiting for emails and a conversation that could take place in 90 seconds instead takes place over five days. Um, and the testable thing is really hard because, you know, it's not meant this way. But one thing that I have definitely found is that, yes, you're right. We have to have wines that we need. We need to taste typical wines. That's the point is to have this this system set up that, you know, well, so that helps you understand what wines are like across the rest of the world so when somebody does bring an oregon chardonnay and you tell them yeah yo this this is not a testable thing this is not something that's going to show up on exam i mean it's very easy for somebody's feelings to get hurt and to feel like they don't get it and like they're they're out of the club or something and you know that's that's a really hard thing to do and i've i've noticed and we i know we've briefly discussed things like this before but like you, you don't want to turn people off to the process, but, but the process mm -hmm. is there for a reason for the benefit of you. And you need, you need that process to thrive in it. Yeah. And then again, with for trying to form tasting groups, like I tried to form them in multiple different towns, not just in our main city in Jackson, um, but also in like Oxford and a few other places. And it's like you can't pull teeth, you know, if you're going to have a tasting group, it's got to be one of those things where you're going to meet every week at this day at this time. And 
a lot of times it was impossible for people to get together or, I mean, life gets busy. We all know that we work in the restaurant industry. Um, but it just, you know, I kind of just gave up on it and just started studying by myself because I mean, I had to, um, and I, it was, I didn't learn to blind taste. I'll say that I didn't know how to blind taste when I took my certified exam. Um, and what I would do was wrap bottles and core in them and blind taste them that way. And then I would do the blind six from Psalm Select. Um, I would get it sent to my owner's house and his wife would bring it to town. My, sorry, my owner's wife's house in Louisiana. And he would bring it, she would bring it to town when she would come stay with them because they kind of live back and forth. Um, and then I would also get it sent to my sister's house. And then she would, you know, meet me in Birmingham with it because we don't have shipping laws here where we can get those in. But the thing about Psalm Select Blind 6 is there are six testful examples. So it's, it's more beneficial for a Psalm who's studying on their own to do something like that. But... I didn't know how to blind taste when I walked into the exam. Um, I was very lucky that the last month that I was studying, I was really focusing on structure because I was before that point just trying to get the grape right, which is what so many people do. They're like, oh, no, I didn't call this wine, so I got it wrong. No, if your structure's there, getting the grape right is just a point. It's all about the other points. And so trying to, which is what I was trying to do yesterday when I was doing this blind tasting for my friend, I was like, I was trying to, uh, she counted off all of her wines and she was like, oh, I got these wrong. I'm like, no, you got the structure. Everything you called was right. Did you get the right answer? No, but they can see why you called Nebbiolo instead of Sangiovese. Like we just talked about why these are common confusions. So that's why we're tasting them side by side. They still would have given you this because you got everything right you just didn't get to the right conclusion but you got to something that is commonly confused with it so I really had to focus on relearning after certified I've been doing a bunch of the tasting with the master sommeliers exams um not exams tasting with the master sommeliers courses and just blind tasting with some other people in the industry online through zoom where we each taste a wine and we try to call what it is, or we do comparative tastings, and we pull the same bottles. And that's been really helpful, because I want to take advanced, the advanced exam, and I want to have a chance at passing. But that means relearning, because I, even though I passed tasting and certified, I passed it because I was focusing on structure, which is great. But I, I didn't really know how to taste the differences amongst wines, because I was still at the end doing a, what do I think this wine is? Not a, what is this wine? What is the wine telling me? Not what do I think the wine is and molding that so, wine. So going that. into certified, you the process of deduction is not necessarily where your head's at, but you are starting to understand the grid. You're starting to figure out which things matter and why they matter. You, it sounds like you have an idea of what typical grape varieties should be like. You're like, it sounds like you're on your way at that point. And um, to the point that you're talking about with your friend, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And so much of blind tasting, I've, I've found a lot of uh, value in not giving a shit if I got the wine right at this point. Now, yes, uh, at this level, like, I mean, yeah, clearly you want to get the wines right. I mean, I get it, but, but there, you know, 
if I get something wrong on a day and I learned something that day because I got something wrong, then the tasting was worth it. It made me reassess things. It made me learn. It made me take on a new lesson. Now you're talking about possibly sitting for the advanced sommelier exam. Um, that's that's a that's a big challenge. And uh, what do you th- how do you feel about about that process? Yeah, um, you know, if I had not been focusing so much on structure the last month of my studying for my certified exam, I definitely don't think I would have walked into the blind tasting portion and passed. Um, Structure was what saved me. They give you these notes at the end, which you're not allowed to actually read out loud and say what they said. But they give you these notes um, at the end, and structure was one of those things that I was I had down at least the way it needed to be and um, they were like you have a great understanding of new world versus old world which a month before that I did not so um, since taking that exam and being very horribly traumatized I have really been focusing on just blind tasting and not always blind tasting but pulling wines and tasting them side by side Um, you know pulling Sauvignon Blanc from France, both of the ones that are testable for advance, the Bordeaux Blanc and the Sancerre, and blinding them and being like, okay, what do these taste like side by side? How can I tell the difference? And then also, if I was tasting this Sauvignon Blanc and I didn't think this was Sauvignon Blanc, what would I think it is? And let me try that next to it so that I can really get an idea of what the markers are and aren't for so each of these before lines. Before getting into, into your aspirations in the court with uh, the advanced exam and anything beyond that, can we, can we walk back a little bit on this, the tasting thing? Because I keep thinking of what it's like to be somebody who, who doesn't know how to taste wine, who's interested in the wine industry. They're 21. It's exciting. Uh, they have a lot to learn, but they don't know where to start. Like, what do you say to them and what, how do you, how do you create something for even, even because Starkville is a pretty small town. Like, what do you do and create for somebody just, if it's just one person uh, in your restaurant or in your market that says, Hey, you know what you're doing. How do I do this? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually do have a guy um, at another restaurant here in town. He was studying, he's studying right now for his intro exam. And I was like, okay, like if you want any help, Let me know if you want to come by and taste, um, you know, let me know and I can help you with that. He hasn't really taken me up on that offer. Um, Maybe he will after and he starts to go for certified because I'd love to help him. And like I said, I've been trying to um, get stuff together for the people studying in Jackson and in Oxford. Uh, But not even just for us, but for other people in small markets because I see it on Guildsome a lot. And even in tasting with these, you know, these exams, I keep saying exams, these courses for tasting with the master sommeliers, which was done online through the guild, not guild, through the court. um, They're just tasting Zooms. You'd have people write in questions like, how do I do this in a small market? And uh, it's always just really frustrating because they're like, oh, people in small markets have done it. Okay. You're not giving anyone any advice. You're not giving anyone anything tangible they can take away and succeed. So as someone who struggled really difficultly trying to study on their own and learning to blind taste on their own, I have been working really hard to put together a list of testable classic wines. And it's a, it's a broad spectrum because I know every market doesn't have the same stuff. Um, 
So I'm trying to get a list like that together so that I can post it onto the study groups on Facebook. I'm also working on a list of laterals, not laterals. Yeah, I guess laterals, laterals. So comparative tastings, um, different tastings that people can do, even if they put on for themselves. Like say you take this list to your store. I'm just going to give ideas to people. Take this list to your store. You have a producer list that you can give them. You have um, a list of different flights you can do. Have them make you a box every week if they're willing to and wrap the bottles. Or you can have a friend wrap the bottles after you pick the case up. And um, then use a Corvin or re-pour whatever you have to do to open the bottles and pour them for yourself. So you have the classic producers in the box because you're not telling the store to just pick out wines. Otherwise, you're going to get a bunch of wines that aren't testable but you're ha- you're giving them a list a guide if they have it in their store they can pull for you that wine put it in your box and you can learn to blind taste that way but then also it's going to have a packet of learning objectives what you should be tasting um what how they differentiate because there's just nothing like that for studying psalms now tim gazer has a blog um and if you can get to that blog, that's great. But it's only for a few of the wines that are common confusions. No one's really doing it for the comparative tastings. They'll tell you, oh, taste this next to this. But I really want to go further than that and be like, what you should be tasting in this wine is this. Um, you should be getting notes of this. Whereas in this wine, you'll be getting notes of this type of thing. So people kind of have a way to gauge and study think- by themselves. But also kind of throwing some theory in that because it comes back to theory. is a huge part of it. And you need somebody that is willing to have a conversation with you about what you're, what's going right and what's going wrong. Um, if you don't have that, you certainly need to take a lot of notes for yourself. But, uh, you know, going back to the, to the going to a store thing, like finding a trusting, trusted retailer is so incredibly crucial in making sure you're not wasting your time and your money. Um, I probably, Mm -hmm. and I've been in the industry for almost 20 years. So, but when I was studying, um, you know, there's a couple of retailers that I trusted and um, I would, when I would go out to eat and I'd ask for somebody to blind taste me on a, uh, something that was like a typical study wine, whatever, whatever, like I very, very, very rarely got something. And it's not necessarily because the menu wasn't built around. Like I totally get if somebody wants to pour, um, you know, a rosé from Sicily from Etna. No, of course that's not testable right now. But like, you know what? It's probably a delicious bottle of wine. And I'm not going to be mad if someone's pouring that. But like it's really hard to go into restaurants and expect someone to pour. So it's like like if you can find that one retailer, like like that's your key to victory, I feel like. I feel like that's like the, the big thing. And and. If you can, if they get what you're doing and they don't ask 30 questions, then you definitely know that that's the place to go. Am I, am I just from my experience? Mm-hmm. And there's another thing that Virginia Phillips said recently that I think was really crucial when she did her um, tasting with the masters on my A's um, part of the course. She said every single night you should be drinking a glass of testable wine. Every single night. She's like, even if you don't want to drink that glass of wine, she's like, do it. Because you need to be drinking only. And she said, you don't need to necessarily be drinking only testable wines. But make sure you have a a glass every night. Even if you spit it out. 
like at least have one glass every night. And every time you're drinking wine, and this is something I'm trying to do right now, go through the deductive tasting. Because once you get to the advanced course, it goes from being you're writing it down for certified, you're getting the feel of the grid, to now we're saying it out loud. So I'm trying to memorize the grid, which unfortunately I, I really didn't do with certified because, you know, I'm writing it down and at the bottom of the sheet, Another thing that they don't tell you um, when you're studying is that there's four grapes at the bottom. The answer's listed for you. You've just got to figure out what the wine is saying to get you to that answer. So you, you said you were a little bit traumatized at the certified exam, but you passed. And mm-hmm. so is it just the process of putting yourself out there on display of, I have to do all these things. I have to go through this, this testing. It's, it's, it's anxiety driven. Is, is, that, is that what it felt like to you? Yeah, it was for me. I am in a small market and, you know, there are so many people who would love to see me fail. So many people. And I remember getting ready to take the exam and I had already dropped out of the certified exam twice, like a week before I was supposed to take it. And um, my boss was like, you cannot drop out of your exam this time. I actually tried to and Katie Dominguez messaged me back and she was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, actually, if you drop out, it's too late and you won't get your, you know, money back. I'm like, what? No. Okay. I guess I'll stay in it. Um, I tried to right before this exam. So (laughs) I wanted to get in Atlanta, (laughs) which got canceled because of COVID. So, but I had this, all this anxiety and just, if I go and I fail, in my mind, I was like, I'm letting so many people down who've believed in me. Um, how am I going to go back to work? You know, I mean, we all work in restaurants and some are, you know, some people you work with are better than others. And for me, it was, I didn't want anyone on my staff, any server or bartender or any guest coming in to be like, oh, well, she didn't, she didn't pass her exam. So she doesn't know what she's talking about especially as a woman, we get discredited at any chance. So for me, failing was not an option. And I remember going through tasting and just feeling completely defeated. Just, I, you know, some people look back to that day and they're like, well, I know I had these wines. I don't remember what I called. I don't remember what the wines were, honestly. Like, I don't remember. Um, But then I got into theory and I was so shaken up by tasting that I started, you know, answering, changing my answers on so many questions I knew the answer to. Um, and I would erase it and I would put something else, um, which for me as a tester, I've always been like this. I'll go through and circle the answers that I don't want hundred, the questions I don't 100% know the answer to so that then I can go sit out in the room and wait and look those questions up look at the answers and gauge how I'm doing on theory, if I'm going to pass or fail, which I knew going in to service that I had passed theory um, because I had answered enough questions to get the points I needed. Um, But I did miss some questions and I remember just smacking myself and I was like, I answered that and I changed it and I knew it was the right answer. Don't know why I changed it. And it was just the anxiety and the stress of the tasting portion beforehand. Um, and then going into theory, I was like, I've already failed. Uh, not theory. Going into service, I was like, I've already failed. I don't care. I'm ready to go home. 
Um, so I walked into theory, just re- not theory. I keep saying that. I walked into service, just ready to get it over with and go home. Cause I had already spent, you know, I was the first to go for service, obviously. Cause that's how my cards fell. Cause Jesus hated <laughs> me that day. But you made it. You passed. You, you're you, you passed. I, yeah, I did. Yes. And it was nerve wracking because you'd go in there and, but I didn't care because I was, I was like, I've already failed. I want to go home. You're still kind of nervous though. And you, you walk in and I just nonchalantly handing out the glasses, going through it like I would, um, opening the bottle, answering questions. And I was doing really well. I was very calm until I got to one question that tripped me up. And I was like, Oh my God, why can't I think of a producer right now? Why can't I think of a producer? And I felt like I waited a long time before I finally said something. Um, but I actually got the highest rating on my feedback on service. So I, you know, and I definitely did. Right. And I definitely felt like I, I felt like walking out of service. I definitely failed, but I ended up on the way home after getting my passing results thinking back to the questions I got and looking them up. And I'm like, no, I actually did answer that right. That's totally not the region. I mean, it happened to be a big producer, but I was like, that's not the region that I I thought we were in. But you know what? Jesus was on my side in that exam because he was also in that area. We know that 2020 has a lot of unknowns. We know the courts going through some really interesting changes you would think systemically, but, but most certainly culturally right now. And, but you're still talking about taking the advanced exam you clearly believe in the process enough to be involved in this version for yourself. And also because probably you want to see some version of changes. Um, Can you, can you tell me what that feels like as you get ready for what's definitely going to be a more difficult exam in an organization that's, you know, evolving? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think, in getting ready for advanced, um, I would love to be in a tasting group and be in a study group in person, but I think we all know it's a very competitive nature, especially in different markets. Uh, and you see it even in the court, you see different people competing with each other and it, it's kind of, it's kind of sad. Um, I hope that one day people will get past that and it's more of a, let me, cause the court's always been so much supposedly on mentorship and pulling people up and helping the person below you get to where you are. Um, and sometimes you find people not want to help, especially in women not want to help other people because you know, why well, had to do it myself so they can. And also if they get ahead, um, if they beat me, blah, blah, blah. And it's this competitive nature that we all subconsciously have that we're having to break ourselves of. But when it comes to the court, um, I do think that I believe in hospitality. I believe in what this this organization can be. And I hope that at the end, they become more diversified and more hospitable to people outside of just white men and also outside of just white women. You know, I'm not. I'm not a representative of the court. I. I am not a master sommelier. I do not represent the organization in any way whatsoever. Um, these are things that I've voiced <clears throat> to a few different master sommeliers, and a couple of them have been gracious enough to talk with me at some length and with candor. Uh, but I would say with candor under the premise of let's 
I'm not going to discuss this in public basically is, is the MO. And I can, I can totally respect that. Um, but some of the feedback that I got was very interesting. And one important thing that I heard that I thought was extremely compelling that, that makes me believe in this process is that somebody did tell me that there is this feeling as though, yes, change is coming. We know it. We know it has to change. There's just situations that are complicated within it that make us slow to change, but it is coming. And to hear somebody say that makes me think, okay, there's internal stuff. It's not my business. It's not my job to know, but I trust these people that they are pushing this organization in a way that is inclusive, that is less about who you know, and how instead not necessarily what you know, but how you treat people and how you use that knowledge as being inclusive as opposed to weaponizing it. All of these things I think are in play. And I'm already, in my personal opinion, I've already started to see the social media side of the company get at it. Now, systemically and, and equitably, those things I think clearly have to change. And I think that was what they were addressing. And uh, I hope, I think the same way you do, that they are making the moves that they are making because that's, that's the business that I believe in. And if they can do that, like I'm on board and I want to be part of those changes too. You know, mm-hmm. you're coming from a position where, you know, you, you're essentially a leader in a smaller town where, where, you know, students look up to you or know that you can be a source of expertise in comparison to what they're they're trying to attain and if we turn off people like you like that's terrible that's that's not good for anybody it's not good that's not good for wine Mm -hmm. sales i mean i can't imagine what how i mean you would i i know you well enough to know like if if you if you were getting those vibes from any organization that you believed in like that's it seems like that would make you want to quit Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like you said, um, I talk to a lot of master psalms because it's like, why am I working so hard? Why is it? I mean, and you you get it. You're a small market psalm. Why are we having to put in so much more work to get advanced for an organization that doesn't want us here? So for me as a woman, you know, I'm like, why am I doing all this work for people who don't really care about me? Um, and I don't know how I would feel if I was, you know, a different race or ethnicity. I, I don't know how I would feel. Like, would I still be sitting here? I was lucky enough to have master psalms to talk to who were like, like you said, who were like, you know, change is coming, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, what about the other psalms who are, you know, who are black, who are Latino, who are in smaller markets? who feel completely alone do they have those same people to reach out to and talk to i don't know i would hate for them to not keep going and not see how great this organization can be one day um but also how many psalms have we lost during the process i feel like the wine industry as a whole has lost a lot of uh, a lot of women um and there's no way to place a number or a trend other than to say um you know i've i've walked around enough enough rooms, uh, enough trade shows. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot, I've seen a lot of, uh, wine distributors, you know, be, you know, 85% white dudes. And it, it's one of those things where I just, I look at and like, I, I don't know if it's intentional and systemic doesn't have to be intentional. 
And we just have to understand that's not saying that you're a jerk because you're involved in something that systemically needs to be fixed a bit. Like you're not the worst person in the world just because you work for that company, but just understand like it's, it's a coterie, it's a club when it doesn't mean, doesn't need to be a club. And then it's maybe these people aren't even trying to be a club. If you're, if you're a group of four, four Psalms in San Francisco and you're the group of four that works really well together and you don't want anyone else involved. Well, how did you meet in the first place? Like, did you meet because you all worked at high-end restaurants? Well, how did you get those jobs at the high-end restaurants? Like what, what steps in your life allowed you to get to that point where you could even afford San Francisco in the first place? And, you know, these things are things I think a lot of people don't consider. And that's, it, it's a little bit of a privilege thing, but it's also just a reality and an empathy thing. Like other people don't have the same opportunities as you, regardless of, of uh, all sorts of factors related to race and gender. And, and these are things that I just, I, I know that you care about deeply and I know that you want, want to see the court uh, change. I think these are things that you, you're the type of person that you would be an asset in, in helping change. And just hearing you talk about it, I would love to see you stay involved uh, for those exact reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would also love to see the court focus a little bit more on mental health. Um, I feel like that's another issue that people aren't talking about. And especially during COVID, like it's so important. Just the anxiety of taking these exams alone is hard. Um, and we all know like mental health working in restaurants is a very, I mean, there's a lot of issues and you don't, we, we have an organization that could focus on that. Even if it's just putting up a resource section on their website. Something. I've talked to a lot of other advanced candidates, masters, et cetera. And a couple of things that have been noteworthy to that point about mental health is uh, somebody I know mentioned about a couple of people who are master psalms now that like, no, they were a total mess when they were studying. It's like, you think everyone's all cool, composed, they dress well, you know, whatever, whatever. But, you know, they're, it can be, it can be really like your life is at stake kind of feelings. Like, you know, I haven't, I haven't sat for the MS exam and I hope to in the next few years, I guess we'll see how it goes, but I can tell you for the advanced exam for service, um, I took beta blockers because my anxiety was through the roof. So that week, precisely because of service, I took beta blockers and it calmed me that calmed me down extremely well. Like I, and service is my weakest point and ended up being my highest score. So I don't know, but um, I'm happy that I did that, but like the pressure is really high. And, and a lot of people, especially when you're isolated, like don't know where to put that pressure. Like, do you, do you go to life coaches? Do you go to mentors who are their master psalms? Cause it's not necessarily the master psalmier's responsibility to help somebody else's mental health. They might want, they might want to, mm -hmm. but like it's, it, that's a hard ask. That's a tough ask. So like it would be interesting to see how they would pivot and be aware of how difficult those things are that you're mentioning. Yeah. I just think it'd be um, just a nice little inclusion to put just some resources, maybe tips um, and not even just always about an exam setting, but you know, just as Psalms working on the floor right now during these difficult times, I don't, I mean, some people, so many people have lost their jobs and you know, that brings depression and so many other things. And these are things that you don't see them mentioning 
you see other organizations like the United Psalm Foundation pop up um, to help out. Um, and I, I feel like there's more we could be doing right now for mental health, but I definitely, I definitely do get that. And it's like, that's another thing for me. Like you mentioned service and I'm sitting here thinking like, Oh crap. I don't know what the service standards are for advance. And I work in a restaurant where our tables aren't really set up for that. And I don't even know if I have the equipment. So I probably should invest. Well, here's what you need. For anyone that's listening, and these things are obviously up to change because, uh, just to reiterate, I am not a member of the Quartermaster Sommeliers. I am just an aspiring sommelier that takes exams. So I just have to be very clear on that. Um, I could tell you what my advanced sommelier experience was. It was, here are here, here you are. There's 12, I don't know, 12 other people who are taking the exam at the exact same time as you. You get near your room. The restaurant dining floor is a large room. Um, you basically like I served, uh, I was told by essentially the, the, the instructor before I entered the room, what kind of restaurant I was somming at and what the menu was. I was told which items were out of stock. Uh, my items were checked. Do I have all my supplies? How do my clothes look? My, you know, stuff like that. Um, and you're given your menu at that point and, uh, take notes if you need to, I guess you could, um, I don't remember that part very well, but I certainly just tried to hone in on what I needed to know about this menu, get familiar with it, think about pairings. And my two tables were two large round tables of eight. And each of those tables had two master sommeliers at them judging me and with six, six empty ta- uh, seats. And one of those was a table based on uh, I believe is a New Year's Eve sparkling scenario, and one was a um, uh, like a, a Piedmont scenario. Uh, beyond that, I, it's it's unfair for me and probably not right to talk about specific questions because I don't think that's legitimate. I don't think that's fair because like how the world do you study specific questions from an exam three years ago? So I, I'm not going to lead anyone down that path. But I just want anyone who's studying for this for the practical part of the advanced exam to know, like get yourself prepared in multiple facets, get yourself prepared for pairings, be aware that you're on display, that you have to be composed, that you're going to be running. You're going to be answering questions while you're moving quickly. You're going to be looking at labels to make sure they're right. Like all the things that you, that they'd expect you to do at a, at a Michelin star restaurant. And if you get yourself used to those standards and you can find a group of people that can help you. Um, you know, I had a couple of people that were really good. Uh, Jerry Baker, friend of mine, Rachel Van Til, uh, Kat Hawkins, um, all three of them were extremely helpful because they all had more service experience than I did. So without them, I don't know if I would have passed at all. Um, but I strongly recommend finding those people who have that experience uh, as you get ready, because you will be, you will be very, very thankful. Yeah, I need to, um, I need to find some But people. you can also do a lot of that via Zoom conversation. You know, there, there's, it, clearly it's more helpful to be in the same room. So if you're ever in a situation where you can get out for two days and go to a major market and find three or four friends that you know that you've talked to, like, I would recommend it. I mean, Houston's a great place for that for you. Um, but zoom does make it easier. Uh, you know, I've definitely found some friends on zoom that I haven't been able to talk to as much as, as I would have otherwise. And I've definitely received some, some mentorship and actual help 
on Zoom when people uh, previously have been unavailable. So like, I don't really call 2020 a year of, of wonderful opportunity. <laughs> it's because it's not that. But uh, I'm trying to make the most out of what, what has been presented, I think, is, is something that I think. But that's, you know, but sommelier, good sommeliers are resourceful people, whether they're going through certifications or not. And you're, you're one of those people, so. Yeah, I'm, you know, uh, I think one of the great things about COVID, not that there's, I mean, COVID's not great at all, but it's just the, the Zoom factor. Um, is that what we're calling it? Let's call it the Zoom factor. I think that's good for it. Um, and there are, there's so much more opportunity to talk to Master Psalms right now and to learn um, virtually, whereas before, like, we didn't have access to this. And it just shows, like, you could have had access to this the whole True. time. True. True story. We could have been doing this the whole time. And I hope that they continue to do these things, like um, fundamentals of tastings, um, tasting with the master sommeliers, different master psalms, just in general, reaching out outside of the court. But I hope they continue to do those things because you could really see the industry go grow and I know people say like, oh, well, they don't want that many people to be in it because if there's so many, then it's not worth anything. But it's like, why would we not want to help as many people as possible and to make restaurants better? Like we are in hospitality. All right, so what do you tell a 22-year-old who works at a pretty decent restaurant in, you know, Murfreesboro, Tennessee? They don't have anybody around. They don't know what to do. But they just had a killer bottle of Barolo and they're like, what? What do you tell that person if they want to learn? If they want to learn, um, I always recommend, you know, starting easy with a book, um, an easy to read book. Normally, I think a lot of people would have gone, you know, go read Wine Folly. That's very basic. Um, Aldo Som just came out with a book. And I mean, it is more on the basic level, but it's a good book and it's a good foundation to get started. And what's really great about his book is that he also puts a few producers in it of wines you can go and try from these areas and um, of these specific varieties. So for someone who's just getting into wine, I think that's a great book for them to get their hands on. Um, it's easy enough to read where it's not going to overwhelm them and it's going to give them some producers that they can go out and taste and try. And then if they go after that and they're like, wow, this was written by a sommelier. What's that? And, you know, he talks about that and maybe they want to become one of those too. And it gives them the resources to kind of go and do that as well. Bobby, I know you're a busy person. I want to tell you, uh, thank you for spending time with us on the small town sound podcast. And overall, I just want to say thank you for being a part of the industry and uh, pushing things forward in a way that is inclusive and beneficial to more than it has been previously. And that's something that uh, I, I value and I'm glad that you're doing it. So thank you. Thank you for helping. And um, thank you for having me. Um, can't, couldn't have done all of this without you. You were one of those people that were extremely helpful when I was well, studying. I'm glad I could be a part of it. It's uh, it's always fun to, to be a part of somebody else's growth. And if I can do that, that's great. And that's one of the cool things about this industry. So much appreciated and uh, you know, Godspeed on all of your uh, endeavors and hopes and dreams through this bizarre as shit world that 2020 is. <laughs> yes. Here's the exactly. 2021. I'll talk to you soon.